Hi, and welcome back to another episode of In Our Tech Society. In this episode, we're going to be talking about a sort of paradoxical choice that Muslim women human rights defenders in the Horn of Africa face. That's between making themselves visible online, which allows them to get their voice out and especially to build the kind of online profile they need to access funding and support. But it also opens them up to online abuse and brings them up against censorship and authoritarian governments. I'm joined by Mardia from the African feminist tech research collective Policy to talk about her new report called Invisible, which I'll link in the show notes. So I'm Mardia and I am a researcher at Policy. Um, But before being a researcher, I'm a storyteller and um, I like to, you know, take a storytelling approach to the research or to writing. But obviously, sometimes there are limitations to how far you can go with that. So, yeah. Um, when you say you're a storyteller, do you do you write books or what, no. what do you do? <laughs> I think that this is like one of those things where they say that when I say I'm a writer, doesn't mean I actually write. But mm-hmm. um, I don't write books. So I just tell stories within the type of research that I write. So for example, if I'm supposed to, you know, write a story on online or research on online violence, I like to center, you know, the subject or have this imaginative approach to writing um, that paper or addressing that issue. So within the different like gender, feminist or capitalist um, stuff that I write, I like to, you know, look at it from a storytelling angle because it's easier for people to follow. Um, so, yeah, that's what I mean by I'm a storyteller. But also even within that, I also, you know, in creativity, by creativity, I also like to kind of deviate from that idea of to be a creative, I need to be an artist. Um, but I look at creativity in knowledge production just from and um, a perspective of how to like make knowledge more accessible. So things like creating um, creating learning. So that could be curriculums, that could be interesting like type of curriculums or curriculums that are centered in certain types of personas or certain type of stories. This could be fictional personas. I like to like do that um, and then build a concept around that but obviously as much as it's fictional it is also grounded in actual you know issues that are happening but yeah interesting that that makes a lot of sense actually I really like the way that that your report that I read was written um so we're going to talk about your report on Muslim human rights Muslim women's human rights defenders in the greater horn of Africa region um Firstly, just what kind of motivated that research project? Okay, so Nima reached out to me last year. Nima, the founder of Policy, she reached out to me last year like, hey, do you want to do this? But for me, um, and I am like starting from, like I'm starting backward, right? For me, it was a personal interest in the sense that I, at the time or still, was researching and trying to understand the connection between 
digitally facilitated surveillance and gender. But because I'm also Muslim or come from a Muslim background, I looked at experiences or experiences within the community kind of made me also want to look at um, how Muslims or conceptualize or bring out <laughs> how Muslims, you know, uh, Muslim women or generally Muslim people experience um, digital violence, surveillance, or experience online spaces or societies in general. And um, at the time, I was, I was doing my master's in sociology where I was, that was my research focus. So for me, that was what that looked like. And so a lot of my work, not all, focuses on Muslim people. But on the broader view, it was also a rare opportunity to explore the intersection of gender, religion, and technology. Because a lot of times, we don't necessarily get funding or the support, external funding or support opportunity to be able to, you know, outwardly research religion and technology. It is almost considered as something that doesn't exist, that our those intersections is considered something that doesn't exist or it's invisibilized. So that's <laughs> invisible. But anyway, so that was like an opportunity on the policy end where we decided to take this on. However, it was um, by, it's a collaboration between us and Musawa. So Musawa is a Malaysian-based um, organization, feminist organization, but they do work within Africa and have worked with different consortiums in um, the Horn of Africa as well. And so this was an opportunity presented to policy by them, um, which they also funded through what Called, what was called the We Cannot Wait Consortium. And so they funded this project. So yeah, that was where the rare opportunity came from. And just to contextualize what we're going to talk about in a minute, could you just tell us who Muslim women's human rights defenders kind of are and what they work on in the Horn of Africa? Like what kind of issues? Okay. Some women human rights defenders are you know, activists, journalists, defenders who are Muslim and also push back on like, you know, repressive governance systems within their location. So the location as the greater horn of Africa and, you know, actions that are justified through religion. So for example, within the project framing, it was looking at uh, family law. So we're looking at digital security for women human rights defenders who work on Muslim family law and the threats that they face. So these are some of the issues that they work on. So they work on family law, they work on, they work against or push back on repressive governance within the Horn of Africa um, and general like activism stuff. So, uh, or journalism and highlighting some of the issues within their context. Um, and those are Muslim human rights defenders. It's so interesting how we just, <laughs> in naming these people, obviously there's something that we can talk about later, but in naming these people, we're, look, we're calling them, we are qualifying them with so many things. You know, somebody would ask like, why aren't we just calling them human rights defenders? That's a whole conversation, but mostly because we just live in a society where the default is not everyone else who is not cis heterosexual white male who can just be called 
a rice defender or just the person we have to qualify everybody else with muslim woman and all of these things but that's why there's the many many qualifications for them but yeah and just as an additional piece of context, how is religion used by authoritarian governments in this region? Um, in your research, you particularly mentioned guardianship laws, for example. Mm. Religion is very interesting and very tricky at the same time, because a lot of <laughs> to talk about religion, you have to walk on eggshells a lot. So you have to be careful what you say or, you know, not painting certain religions in a certain way. But a lot, I see that like a lot of governments would use religion in their policies to, you know, govern people and say that, okay, if the religion says X, Y, and Z, and this is not just with repressive governments, we're even seeing this in like different states where when they say that, our religion says that this is the proper type of morality that a country needs to use. So then they use that to ascribe that higher calling that kind of helps them evade a certain type of accountability, right? And that accountability could be that, for example, let's say in Ghana, one of the biggest things that's happening is where they're saying that they're promoting proper uh, proper family values. And those proper family values are being ascribed to the fact that religion or um, Abrahamic religion is saying that you cannot be a certain person. And so they're like, okay, we're going to govern the state with that. And that's one of the ways. And even when you look at the context of this research, most of it was looking at people who work in family law, right? So you realize that, for example, in family law, um, in certain countries, you're told that certain countries, marital rape is still legal or is not illegal. Or in certain countries, you realize that certain people cannot say that I want to divorce, you know, my partner or even violence within the marriage is also fine. Or a certain type of like control or patriarchal violence is still within the law and that is also be or punishable if you know you go against it as a certain person so that person could be if you're a woman or somebody who is not a woman like the feminine and what what usually then happens is that religion is used to justify why these things should exist in the first place and so that is one of the ways you know governments would use um, religion to repress or oppress or, you know, create all of these issues within a certain state. So, yeah. And one of the interesting pieces of context here is that um, internet coverage is pretty bad in the Horn of Africa in general, but online spaces are used a lot by Muslim women human rights defenders. Could you just tell us, like, how they use those spaces? Yeah, I like that you mentioned that internet coverage is bad. So before, usually one thing that came out of the research, when we're going into the research, we had assumptions that, okay, we're going to look at digital security. And then there's obviously digital security requires a certain type of digital to exist within the space in the first place. But an interesting finding was that we needed to backtrack and realize that they do use and not use online spaces at the same time. So in, the, in terms of access, which you already mentioned, 
we would see that within certain locations, right? Let's say some of the women work in, you know, some of the rural locations or locations with high, like within mountains and stuff. And, you know, they're not able to access good internet. Then the first place on internet is too expensive. So in the context of Uganda, there was the taxes that were introduced. And so some of the rice defenders would say that, like, why would I then use, um, why would I then use a space that, first of all, I would be threatened in and also have to spend all of this money just to be connected? But also some of them also worked with people within the grassroots or like on ground that they believe that they did not necessarily need to use online spaces. But at the same time, for the people who did use or understand why they needed to, some of the issues were that, yes, um, I they say online activism is the space where I get my voice out there and so on. But when you look at the context of the of the Horn of Africa or even like within different or some of the activists and rights defenders, most of them believed or realized that to be online meant that they're increasing the threats that they're already facing. So as much as some of them might use that space to talk about certain issues, they did not necessarily always approach activism within that mainstream idea of visibility or mainstream idea of um, activism where you have to be visible in a certain way to be seen that you're doing important work. So some of them would share that they don't necessarily put um, their um, work on gender, you know, that criticizes their communities out online. Or even when they do, they had to like be anonymous. Or when they have, uh, when they are having gatherings, they have to like take um, many different digital security and this is like on the big organizational level, right? These are people within organizations where they have to take all of these precautions to make sure that whatever gathering they're going to have is secure in a certain way and it's not necessarily publicized. So at the same time, there's the activism going on in a certain way, but it's happening in a kind of counter public or rather space that centers security which was like quite interesting because that just brought up all of these complicated conversations or understanding of, you know, how people use online spaces beyond, you know, the normal. And um, obviously Sam shared how the threats were also with skills. So yes, they see the benefit of using online spaces, but at the same time, they don't have the skills to address some of the threats. So which means that if they should be, if, if they should use online spaces in a certain way, it would bring much more harm than they can address. So they would rather not use it so that they're able to address threats within what they know. But yeah. And there's a lot of pushback against Muslim women human rights defenders. How do governments try to resist these activists? Mm, okay. So the state-sponsored violence, right? So for example, some of the human rights defenders shared how even when 
you know, they're working discreetly or however they choose to work, what would happen is that the government has spies. And these are like within certain countries, the government would have spies. And these spies are sometimes people that know the human rights defenders personally. So for example, an example that was given is that you were an activist in uni, university, and what would happen is obviously you've built your career, you've become like this prominent activist, or sometimes not prominent, like you're still an activist after university. And so, and a spy could be somebody you went to school with. But also there's the violence in the sense of um, financial violence where sometimes the government bars people from hiring you. And so, which means that you cannot get any other job beyond what you're doing right now. And most of the activists that we spoke to were independent activists. So they work at the grassroots. They're not necessarily affiliated to like organizations. And so people, they bar you from getting any type of job. Nobody wants to hire you. And if you are lucky enough to have a family business, and a family business can be anything, right? That is what they are, you get to do. And as part of the state-sponsored violence is also brigading, where the states would also, there's like these state-sponsored bots that would, you know, push a certain type of propaganda against what you're doing or propaganda, kind of disinformation propaganda against you as an activist, and there's also threats of hacking, but the hacking aspect is also from both individual and um, organizational level. Where organizations risk being hacked by, you know, you know, government, state, government intelligence agencies, and um, if a lot of sensitive documents get out, it puts them at risk in a certain way. And other things that obviously we mentioned was like, or we found out was how sometimes the gov- like government agencies or intelligence are advanced, right? Obviously, there were conversations around Pegasus, but intelligence agencies are advanced to be able to forecast certain things. So forecast that a certain type of protest must, might be happening, but that forecast obviously comes with, you know, having spies on ground or having all of these things that allow you to spy on people like spyware and actual people who spy on people. And they're able to forecast some of these things. But on the human rights defender side, that does not exist. They don't have that capability or kind of resources and capacity to be able to push back or be also able to counter forecast certain type of threats that might happen. But these are some of the existing threats um, that they face. And I think you also mentioned in your research about how, especially in Uganda, the government kind of uses taxes to to almost try to reduce access to the internet because it's quite useful to them and they're scared about what the internet could do to the regime. Is that right? Um, yeah, um, so it's, (laughs) I looked at it from like a financial oppression or repression perspective where, you know, introducing taxes, the idea or the general idea is that 
when let's say if I'm a government and I introduce tax, I would say that, oh, because, you know, we've seen that like all of this thing is happening online and then we want to, you know, tax, you know, um, your buying of data, which data is already expensive. And so you're buying like mobile data and um, when they, and they usually use the idea that financial revenue for the, country but this is only just happened in uganda different african countries are looking at this but in their own ways so in ghana we're seeing mobile money and um i think in benin benin tried the same but that was pushed back there was like citizen-wide pushback on that but what that does is that it just really limits how people would be able to use the internet because like i said earlier there are women who work in the grassroots who are talking about, and this is in the case of Uganda, that internet connection in the spaces that I work is bad anyway, but at the same time, it's very expensive. And if like if you've introduced taxes as well, then it makes it just even more expensive. So I'd rather not use it. And these are people who are also like struggling or not having much access to financial resources in the first place. So when you look at the layers of introducing taxes, it's just, yeah, like you see that there is that um, space where, or as part of that layer, you are able to limit how many people, how long people would be able to use a certain space in a certain way. And we talked about how there's kind of an interaction between religion government and also society is it just governments trying to resist the work of muslim women human rights defenders or are there other kind of social elements trying to push back as well yeah um so actually when you look at religion it's more social (laughs) it's more social and government really just weaponize it to control not just governments many people also weaponize it especially when you look at religious patriarchy like a lot about it is weaponized to be able to control a certain people. So it could be women, could be queer people, could be just people that, you know, are not within a certain power, right? And so even when you look at the work of human rights defenders or the Muslim women human rights defenders, they don't just push back on governments. They also, like I said, they look at also family law right? Family law and also within the context of the research that we did is within Muslim family law, which is really like taking from Muslim jurisprudence, Islamic jurisprudence, right? So that says that what a family should be or how a family should be governed. The pushback they do, or even on gendered violence, right, also means that stepping on toes within the community or, you know, pushing back on patriarchal issues and violence within the communities that they are in. So even if they face a certain type of um, threat at the government level, within their community, they're like, obviously threats to physical and online violence. So for example, some women shared how online they would get like, violating dms that would obviously call them bitches and that 
sometimes obviously some of this is also racial right for some they like when they speak arabic they're told that oh why are you speaking arabic you know you like and um others also get um image abuse so they're abused where people would send them unsolicited news within their um, social media spaces but at other times they're also shamed so it's very important for us to look at like how moral shaming also shapes how um some of the women are threatened within their communities right and this is where it even transcends online so for example most of them are called bad muslims and that they're corrupting the young girls that are coming up and this pushback from the community comes from when they're working on um issues of gendered violence or violence against women and girls within their communities or sexual violence as well they're always they always face these issues that oh you're corrupting the girls why are you bringing you know the f word feminism why are you teaching them feminism and in a lot of conversations or generally it's like when you look at islam and um a lot of people who work who are muslim or whatever a lot of them say that islam does not need feminism because it's perfect so whether or not some of these muslim human rights defenders call themselves feminists it's really within the practice of what they're doing that contributes to the movement or whatever would call the feminist movement look like and a lot of that causes physical threats within the community and for some of them also they get hacked and doxxed so one um human rights person who is a founder of an organization shared how um her number was or her information was publicized online and she kept getting all of these horrible threatening messages and on her phone and her DMs and all of these things. So these are some of the ways that the women human rights defenders are threatened even at the social or social element because at the end of the day their work is also very social, right? And there are different look like there are different powers that exist at different levels with where they work. So they are the visible powers they are the hidden ones and they are the invisible ones that they have to you know push back on and that's also what makes feminist work or or human rights work very dangerous because yes as much as you acknowledge that a certain thing is happening and push back on that thing patriarchy is also very dangerous so it would also push back and that push back could be is disciplinary and violence and all of these things or stigmatization and that stigmatization centers that whole morality of shame where you're told that you are bad muslim you're not muslim enough or you are spoiling these girls or you know even within the communities you're told like you're kind of stigmatized out of the community or seen in a certain way so i do know some of the somali human rights defenders that we spoke to were like when they do gender work they always have to find different ways to communicate that work because they know that they will get a certain type of pushback or a certain type of threat within their communities and yeah so some of these are some of the ways that um the threats they face are much more 
than just governments, but also in their everyday lives. And just finally, and I can't take credit for this question, thank you for making me ask it. Your report is called Invisible with the in in brackets. Why did you choose that name? We approach this research with assumptions, right, of what is going on in the sense that even in the TR, there's, oh, there's digital security threats. There are certain things that are going on. There are Muslim women using digital technologies in a certain way. But what we came to realize, obviously, as we did the research, was how visibility became a paradox where Muslim women had to, or the human rights defenders, negotiate this interesting space between what activism is supposed to be and their safety. So activism is supposed to be in the sense that to be able to get a certain type of recognition, funding, whatever, right? And, you know, the mainstream is for you to be visible in a certain way online, which also brings brings threats to you. But at the same time, that is the visibility or you being out there in a certain way creates all of these threats that you have to face or negotiate or address while you are doing that. So most of them also exist within this space where they've created a safe space for themselves or a strategy of activism and that allows them to be safe at the same time. Yes, there's so many different concepts and theories that explain why that happens, especially because this is like a gender patriarchy, surveillance face and type of research where obviously surveillance benefits from people being visible in a certain way so that you're able to control discipline and, you know, control what they are doing, know what they're doing and control what they will do in the future. But within this mainstream space that we're living, <laughs> you have to be visible to get the money or to get the support, to get the recognition. And so the research, the research just brings a lot of like many more questions or many more curiosities in such concepts which is also why we named it that, so that we're looking at, you know, that interesting paradox of visible and invisible, right? How do you negotiate that? How do you address that? Yes, we attempt to answer some of it, but most of it leaves with much more reflections because we don't have the answers because even the answers go beyond the digital and go beyond, obviously the digital technologies make the issue is much more complicated or it's always been complicated, but like problematizes the issue. But then we just have, do we just leave with much many more questions? Like how then do you navigate these things? And because social media affordances are created based on people's visibility in the first place or digital media affordances. So yeah. Madia, it's been such a pleasure. Thank you so much for speaking to us today. Thank you. If you'd like to learn more about online safety for women in Africa, we discussed this in the workplace in a recent episode, which I've linked in the show notes. There you'll also find the link to request a copy of Madia's report, which you can read in full if you want to. We also have an episode coming up in the next month from a Ugandan activist on what a feminist internet would mean. Next week, 
we're back and we'll be interviewing an Oxford tech policy researcher with an interest in Chinese philosophy on the race to regulate our AI and how it's viewed differently in Brussels and Beijing. See you then.